Heavenly Father, thank you uh, again for your word that you speak to us, and uh, please do help us to give attention to you as you speak. Uh, Please do open our eyes and soften our hearts uh, that we might indeed be among those who trust and go on trusting, uh, who repent and go on repenting. In the Lord Jesus, amen. Uh, Mark showed us that Jesus is king. Jesus is Christ. Uh, He is God come to save and rescue and deliver. Uh, God come to judge. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to send a king, to send a Christ. And uh, this section is one where we see Jesus coming as king. It's It's a section which helps us understand, helps us answer the question... Where does Jesus being king leave those who are religious? Where does it leave the religious people who reject him? Chapter 9 begins about three kilometers outside Jerusalem, uh, near Bethphage and Bethany. Uh, It's on the southeastern slopes of of the Mount of Olives. That's the other side of the Mount of Olives from entering in towards Jerusalem. And uh, we've heard Jesus say that he's going to Jerusalem where he will be killed. Uh, pilgrims would enter the city on foot usually, but Jesus sends the disciples to get him a colt. Uh, now, kings did not share horses. Uh, the king's horse was the king's horse. No one else rode it. Uh, so the... Hmm? I thought I heard a hiss. Okay. Um, so the ridden by no one else colt that Jesus enters Jerusalem on, uh, it's a colt fit for a king. It's a colt, not a war horse, uh, not a war horse, because he comes in peace. Uh, there's a little, few verses from Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 9, uh, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. God will destroy Israel's enemies. The next verse, her king will bring peace to all nations, and Jesus is that king. As he enters, people put cloaks and palm branches on the road, it's sort of like, like an improvised red carpet for the king arriving. And as they follow, they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. They look to God to fulfill his promise and restore the kingdom. They praise Jesus as the son of David. Uh, That's what Bartimaeus called him as he he followed just at the end of the last section. They praise Jesus as Christ. Whatever secrecy there was around Jesus' identity as Christ earlier on, it is now an open secret, a known secret. It is now public. Part of what they say uh, that comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. Uh, the whole verse says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And as the crowds follow, they bless Jesus as he comes into his city. They bless the Christ coming to his city. But when he comes to the house of the Lord, when he comes to the temple, there's no fanfare, there's no celebration. Jesus is not blessed by the people or the leaders when he enters the temple. Verse 11, we just told he looks. We're not told what he saw. 
just that he and his disciples went back to Bethany, back on the other side of the Mount of Olives. The next day, they make their way back to Jerusalem. And as they come, they, Jesus sees a fig tree. Uh, Jesus looks on it for something to eat, which is kind of doubly confusing because Mark tells us that figs weren't in season. Now, usually, actually, out of season doesn't mean nothing to eat. It means not full figs. There, there's no ripe figs, but there would be immature buds. Uh, months before they're full figs, uh, the tree has buds which will mature into figs. And those buds are actually edible. Uh, Jesus saw the leaves in the distance and expected to find edible buds, I think is, is what's going on here. But he found no buds. And no buds out of season means that when the tree was in season, no figs. Because the buds grow to the figs. Jesus who speaks and it is so, speaks. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The disciples hear him. Uh, They walk on to Jerusalem, they enter the temple. Uh, And now we see what Jesus saw the previous day. Uh, The temple is more marketplace than prayer house and Jesus stops it. He stops the currency exchange, He, he stops the sale of sacrifice, he actually stops People carrying things just means carrying sacrifices. It's just, it's, it's all stopped. The sacrifices themselves are therefore stopped. Verse 17, he tells them why. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the scribes, they're allowing commercial chaos. The bit of the temple where the Gentiles would come to pray, it's, it's a marketplace, it's rezoned for market stalls. Centuries earlier, the Lord God spoke to Israel through Jeremiah. Chapter 7, verse 9 to 11. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, saved, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jesus sees what's going on and he says the temple is as bad now as it was then. The way they use it does no more harm than good. Just like Zechariah's, sorry, Jeremiah's day. Verse 18, the leaders should have, sorry, would have happily killed him there and then. But they fear the crowd because they're impressed by Jesus' teaching. Again, Jesus and his disciples spend the night outside the city. The next morning, they take the same path back towards Jerusalem, and they see the fig tree withered from its roots up. It's dead. They, the disciples know Jesus spoke it, and Peter points it out. Now, this is the only destructive miracle in all of the Gospels. I think it's here to help us understand the sacrifice stopping, what Jesus did in the temple. The destruction of the fruitless fig tree pictures the coming judgment on the fruitless temple and its leaders. Jesus stopping the sacrifices glimpsed God's king bringing judgment on empty religion. He's the king who brings that judgment. Just like the fruitless fig tree died so the temple will be judged 
So Jesus says, verse 22, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. She's basically saying, trust God who promised to save and judge. Now, my phone is sounding a bit of a late, but let me show you why I say that. Trust God who promised to save and judge. He's not declaring open season and mountains. He's not saying that God it will be your personal genie, nor is he saying that inadequate faith is the only explanation for unanswered prayer. Now, Jesus spoke these things while standing on the side of the Mount of Olives. He and his disciples have walked around and over every time they're kind of in and out of Jerusalem, going out to Bethany. Centuries earlier, God spoke uh, about the Mount of Olives uh, through the prophet Zechariah. This is the background Jesus has in mind. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 3 to 12. I won't read it, but it's on the screen. Uh, God warned about judgment. He promised to come and save He said he would split the Mount of Olives in two, so there's a valley between the halves. He said he would level out the land into a plain, so that Jerusalem on Mount Zion stands tall alone. It's like heading down to Mount Tambourine, and there's no Mount Gravatt, none of the other hills are there, it's just all flat, and then Mount Tambourine. Zechariah saw all flat, and then Jerusalem with its temple. Seeing all the high places where Israel had made offerings to Baal and the other gods laid low. God said he would do it. Salvation and judgment. Jesus is saying that the time has come. He's telling his disciples that it's time to ask God to do what he promised to do. Prayer doesn't make God your personal genie, (laughs) no matter what. And no matter how much you believe what you ask for, faith is trust in God who speaks. It's not trust in God to do whatever you want to happen in a particular moment. Jesus is saying when you believe God will keep his promise, when you ask him to do what he has already promised, you can be sure that he will. You can look back at November's podcast uh, staff to, to look at the tune your prayers, uh, listen to some of those talks again if you like. But it's that same idea here, that when you anchor your prayers in God's promises, in your knowledge of him and his purposes, when you ask him to do what he's already promised, it will be yours. When you trust God who speaks and call Him to, on him to do what he's already promised, you can be sure he will do it. And with Zachariah in the background, uh, the mountain-moving prayer is the prayer that God will come in final salvation. But final salvation, which also means judgment on rebels. Which is why it makes sense for Jesus to say what he says next. Verse 25. And whenever you stand praying for judgment on salvation, Forgive. Forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So when life in this world makes you groan and you long for and pray for the the day when God sets things straight, make sure you're on the right side of God setting all things straight. 
make sure you're forgiving others because God does not forgive those who do not forgive. He will not forgive those who do not forgive. Now, that sounds hard. It sounds like it's put too strong. It's what he's saying, isn't it? Happy to chat about it, but you might want to take a note just to read the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Long story short, Christ calls his people to forgive. And the more clearly we see how much we've been forgiven, the easier it will be to forgive those who have done us real harm. The inevitable outcome of knowing the glorious Lord Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom to pay our unpayable debts, is that we'll let go of the relatively minor debts that others owe owe to us. We'll forgive. Salvation and judgment are coming. So Jesus is saying, make sure you stand forgiven when when it comes. So look to Christ for forgiveness. And when you struggle to forgive others, look to what Christ has done for you. See the debt you've been forgiven. See what he did to spare you until it unlocks forgiveness in your own heart. Trust God who promised to save and judge. Now, trusting God means trusting his beloved son. Uh, We heard God in heaven um, at the Transfiguration last week, chapter 9, say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus has been speaking and acting as if he has the God-given right to speak, speak and act. And verse 28 and on, uh, he's bumming against the chief, scri- chief priests and scribes and elders who aren't listening. You're rejecting him. Because really they're feeling some of the hate of what Jesus said. Uh, the temple is their territory. They have authority. They allowed what Jesus called the den of robbers situation. They didn't authorize Jesus to do anything in the temple. They certainly didn't authorize him to teach that they were in the wrong. They asked Jesus, who gave you the right to do all this? Verse 29, Jesus says, he'll answer them if they answer him. Who gave John the Baptist the right to baptize, he asks. Was it God or was it humans? And we hear them discussing their options. But they're not discussing what's true, are they? They're considering what people will think about their answer. If they say, uh, God gave John the right, Jesus is going to say to them, well, why didn't you believe him? But but if they say, God didn't, it was just people, well, then the crowd are going to criticize them because they're convinced that John the Baptist was a prophet sent by God. The leaders have no interest in which one is true. They're only interested in what people will say and do because of what they say, their response. No interest in who gave John the right to baptize. No interest in whether God gave Jesus the right to be listened to. They refuse to say who gave John the right. So Jesus refuses to tell them who gave him the right. See how wrong they are? They rejected John, who God sent to prepare the way for Jesus, and they're rejecting the one God calls his beloved son. 
Uh, Jesus expected them to reject him. He, he mentioned that back, back in chapter 8. He, he names these ones, the elders, chief priests, scribes. They're supposed to nurture God's people. But they're unfit to lead God's people. So Jesus doesn't answer them because, well, they answer to him as God's son. He doesn't answer them, but he does warn them. Beginning in chapter 12, he shows them the deep danger of getting it wrong. Jesus describes the owner who plants a vineyard. He fences it. He prepares the wine press. He builds a tower to protect it. It's ready to manage, to, to, to harvest the grapes, to crush them, to bottle the wine. And he rents it out to tenants and goes to another country. But when he sends back someone to collect the rent, the tenants beat that person and send them away with nothing. The owner sends another servant and the tenants beat him and shame him. The next servant they, they kill. The owner keeps sending servants and the tenants beat or kill every servant he sends. Until verse 6. He has no one to send except for his beloved son. In the parable, the owner sends his beloved son to the tenants, thinking, they will respect my son. Now, it would make sense for them to treat the son differently. But they don't. They plot with each other. You hear them saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they kill him. They dump his body outside the vineyard. And they foolishly think they have won. They think they'll be the owners. They think no heir when the owner dies means they'll get the vineyard when he is gone. Which makes no sense. There's no way the owner will let his property go to his son's murderers. Verse 9, he'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus tells this to the chief priests and scribes and elders who are rejecting him. Really, Jesus is saying, was, what will God do to you? Actually, he's telling them what God will do to those who reject him. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said these ones would reject him, hand him over to be killed. Now, while they're doing it, he warns them that they're doing it. They're just like their ancestors who they're proud to follow, but they're following them in rebellion. The Lord God sent prophets to the ancient Israelites, and they mocked his messengers. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets. They even killed some of his prophets. And these leaders, they rejected God's messenger, John the Baptist, and they're rejecting God's beloved son, seeking a way to destroy him. Now, the owner in the parable expected things to go better when he sent his son. God in heaven knew how they would react when he sent his son. Uh, Jesus showed them that by, by quoting from the same salvation psalm that the, the crowd uh, sang as he arrived in Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus warns the leaders who are rejecting him, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
ancient history, a, a, a lump of rock on the side of the temple, rejected as useless. But then when they needed the cornerstone, exactly the piece that was required. Exactly what they needed. Jesus in history, rejected by the leaders of the temple, but exactly God's person, the one on whom the new temple is built. See the point? God is not surprised by the rejection of his beloved son. When they reject the son and send him to his death, it will not be the end for the son. It's part of God's marvelous plan to bring salvation through his beloved son. Temple leaders, they're, they're, in some sense, they're opposing God's plan. They're certainly opposing God's son. Jesus shows them, but sin is blind. They know the parable is about them, but they refuse to believe it. They hear the warning, but instead of turning around, they double down. They recommit to putting a stop to Jesus. They'd have arrested him there and then if they weren't scared of what the crowd would do. But they keep trying. They, they sent the Pharisees and Herodians to trap him. I'm going to move quickly through this next section. Uh, we'll come back to look at the detail of what Jesus teaches here uh, in a few weeks' time. Super briefly, verse 13 to 17, Pharisees and Herodians, they're trying to trap Jesus with a political issue. He answers by hinting at what God says in the Old Testament scriptures about humans being made in his image. Uh, next, the, the Sadducees try to make resurrection look ridiculous. Jesus answers them mostly by explaining the Old Testament scriptures, but also by adding his own word about resurrected humans being like angels. Then verses 28 to, 24, 28 to 34, a curious scribe asks what commandment in the Old Testament scriptures is the most important and then agrees with Jesus about loving God and loving your others. And Jesus says he is not far from the kingdom of God. Not far from, but not in. Those three interactions, they show us both the, the, the continuity and the newness of the son speaking of the son's saving. The truth is there to be read in the Old Testament scriptures. We'll come back and look at it down the track. Jesus read what was already there, explained it. But it's not just what's there. It's, all, it's not just what's there. and It's not just more of the same. We're starting to get a glimpse of the shift from servants to son. Major shift in the parable, major shift in reality from prophets to son. Mark uses the next little um, teaching block to push us to see that significance, to see how different things are now the Son has come. Verse 35, Jesus asks, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, as a prophet speaking for God, as God's king, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? How do these two things fit? You know, they're thinking Abraham is greater than Isaac. Uh, Judah is greater than David. David is greater than his descendants. But King David called the Christ greater. Jesus saying you can't read these words spoken by David as a prophet and think that Christ will just be another David, just be another prophet. 
Just think that a Christ is coming to do similar things to what David did. By the Spirit, David himself teaches that the Spirit will be much greater than him. So great that King David calls him Lord. With the coming of the beloved son, something new has come. It's not just business as usual. It's not just more of the same. The genuine scribe, he's seen some of that continuity, but he hasn't seen it yet. He hasn't seen yet who Jesus is. His ethics, his morality, they've brought him near to the kingdom, but he won't enter until he sees Jesus is the son, until he listens to the beloved son, until he trusts the son who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what's new. Jesus warned the scribes about rejecting him. Uh, Next, he warns the crowd about following the scribes. Uh, 38 to 40, uh, chapter 12, they're they're outwardly impressive, but inwardly self-interested and self-serving. They don't even slow down when their selfishness makes widows suffer. Jesus says, see them clearly, so you won't follow them. See how they'll be judged so you won't follow them. Go to the end of chapter 12. Jesus found, (laughs) he looked at the temple and he found no fruits. No fruit among the temple's leaders. But he sees this widow, verse 41. Uh, He's sitting where he can see the offering box. The, The rich are coming with their enormous checks. It's like the charity donations from public companies. And they want everyone to see how much they're giving. A week or a month or a year's worth of wages. Then a widow drops two coins. Uh, Not two of the coins worth a, a day's wages. Two tiny coins, each worth six minutes wages. Twelve minutes. She drops in. Verse 43, Jesus says, this poor widow has put in more than all those contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This widow has learned in spite of her leaders. They devour widows, but she denies herself everything. (laughs) Then they took her coins. God sees her heart. I think we're supposed to see here a faith-filled Israelite. A woman who has seen God in the scriptures. Who does love the Lord her God with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. With all she has to live on. I know it's a bud on a fig tree that's going to be a full fruit. Here's a woman who loved much because she's been loved much. I think it's fair to expect that here's a woman who forgives because she knows she's been forgiven. Fair to expect here's a woman who, when Christ is raised, will trust him, waiting to ripen. Her all-in giving helps us see what it is to truly follow Jesus. To take up our cross and follow him. To deny ourselves and follow him. 
abandoning the pretense of proving ourselves to others. Strict rules which keep things external from our hearts. We've given up on those. It's going all in with the Son, who God sent. Last week we saw how crucial uh, his coming is forgiveness, that he came to give his life as a ransom. He came to pay the debt of judgment that we could not pay ourselves. This widow who gave all she had to live on, the disciples who sit with Jesus because they've left everything to follow him, they help us see the limits well, the, that there are no limits. There are no limits in what Christ can demand of us. He's worthy of all. Not as a ransom we pay for ourselves, but because he paid the ransom we could not pay. This passage warns us against religion. Religion which can stubbornly push Jesus away. Religion which will say, here's another alternative. But there is no alternative. There's no other way than through the Son who suffered. He gave his life as a ransom. The Son, God's King, who came to save, but will judge those who reject him. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you and praise your glorious Son, Lord Jesus, who who came to Jerusalem as King. He came to Jerusalem in order to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you that you have raised him, that he has uh, come into your presence, that he is exalted and praised in the heavenly temple. Father, thank you for the warnings of this passage of the danger of rejecting him. Father, please use them to keep us saying that we must continually follow after him. See the danger of drifting away, of hardening ourselves to your Spirit's work, of losing hearts. Father, thanks, though, too, for the, the glimpse of the goodness the goodness of following your Son and knowing ourselves forgiven, forgiving because we have been forgiven, being so captivated by your love for us in him that we're eager, we'd be eager to serve you with everything. Thanks that you see the small things, that glimpse of that, that widow who's materially insignificant, gift you saw as real and genuine as an overflow of her response to you father please help us to see in our days in our mondays to sundays the ways in which we get to please and honor you and your son and please make us men and women and children who more and more are all in on pleasing you and your son and more and more are eager to see others turn to him also 
that they too would be spared, that they too would thrive as your people. In the Lord Jesus, amen.